Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the forget about it? All right, let's focus. Let's focus. Huddle up. Huddle up. It's a it's a difficult day for some people. Okay, I'm not I'm not talking to everybody right now. Look, some of you may be thrilled to be uh, having Thanksgiving with family. This might be a high point. You might it might be an opportunity for you and your kids to see their grandparents, their aunts and uncles, and their cousins. Yeah, and that might even be the case. And it might be a, a terrifying and uh, and taxing, emotionally taxing experience. But look, I'm not not going to begrudge anybody a wonderful day with their family today. But I would like to speak to the people that are, are entering this situation with not the best outlook or disposition or with good expectations. Maybe I'd like to reach out to them right now because for some people, you know who you are. This is going to be a fucking nightmare. Today is going to be a nightmare. I right, look, let's give thanks. We'll give thanks. But man, we some of us we're just going to have to get through this shit, am I right? Now I'm not necessarily talking about me. You know, I've I've made some peace with the situation. I'm okay. I'm getting better. It's only taken me about, you know, 20 years to to be okay, but you never know, man. You never know entering this situation. Let me do a little business here first. Now, but hang out, hang out. First I want to say that today on the show, Rhett Miller uh, the uh, the wonderful uh, alt country rocker is that what we call him? The old ninety sevens is his band. He's also done some solo work. Nice guy, uh, a phenomenal artist. He's going to hang out and play a song or two. All right, let's get back to the task at hand, team. I'm talking to the emotionally volatile. I'm talking to the emotionally sensitive. I'm talking to the emotionally traumatized, to the scarred, to the people with resentments against mommy and daddy. Or mom and pop, or, or or mother and father, or or uh, whoever might be your grandparents. God forbid, they're the troublemakers. But this is a big day, man. We got we got it. We got to suit up emotionally. Am I right? Now here's here's my pep talk. I'm I'm improvising this. So so okay. So look, I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're already there. Maybe you're in it. Maybe you've 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 taken a walk to listen to WTF to get out of the fucking house for a few minutes maybe the turkey's in the oven maybe shit is already cooking maybe you've already had a fight 
with your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your cousin, who it A, B, C, D, E, or F, whatever. Pick it. Maybe maybe you you maybe you're the one who just lost their shit and and is now running out of the house, taking a breather in the cold air, taking in where you grew up, maybe taking in where you know something very familiar to you. Maybe you're in the car. You're going to drive around a little bit. Hey, look, there's where you used to buy liquor when you were in high school. Oh, I wonder if that guy's still there. Oh, hey, I wonder if my friend's still alive. Oh, I wonder. Hey, I wonder if that guy couldn't still be working at that place, could he? Maybe I'll go by there. Oh shit, it's Thanksgiving. Nothing's open. Nothing's open. I'm just going to drive around until I feel better, and then I'll go back home, and everybody will be like, hey, you feel better? And you'll be like, eh, a little bit. Yeah, I'm sorry, I lost my shit. All right, let's get back. Get out of the fantasy. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. How are we going to have a good day today? All right, well, first, I think you got to open your heart and realize that you're a grown person, all right? If you are a grown person, most people listen to my show are grown people, all right? Whatever they're going to do, whatever buttons they're going to push, they're, they're old buttons, and there's no reason that they should work anymore. So I guess what I'm suggesting, this is bold, uh, disconnect the buttons before you go in. Realize where they are, and then you know maybe push them yourself a couple of times to make sure they're not registering, and just shut that, maybe close, you know, just, I, I would go on, on manual. I need no buttons. Just trust your instincts. Trust your heart on this, all right? Just, you know, turn off the whole panel. And walk in and realize... First, all right, maybe you're pissed off about something that happened a long time ago and it's just ongoing and it's never going to be let go of. And maybe it's just about the cycles of emotional chaos that happen when you go home. We all know that it's very easy to get around your parents and act like a fucking child. And it's going to happen a little bit. Just pick, pick, the good, get, pick, pick good moments for it. Maybe make it be positive. Whew, take a breath. Take a breath. If you're cooking, don't hurt yourself. You know, focus. Stay focused. Don't panic. If you need people out of the kitchen, get them the fuck out of the kitchen. If mom is intruding on your, you know, maybe your pie, say, look, I'm making a pie. You know, you can do your work over there, but just stay out of my fucking pie, mom. Whatever the case is. If you have family that enjoys sitting around watching sports and it's not your thing, let them do it. Fuck it. Go in the other room. Talk to the ladies. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what happens. All I'm trying to do is tell you to have a nice time and be grateful that whoever is still around is still around, even if they drive you fucking crazy. The one thing you're going to notice when you get back there is that everybody's getting older. You're getting older. Kids are growing up. Parents are getting older. Maybe grandma's still around. Whatever. It's just that there's not a lot of time, folks. There's just not a lot of time. With good families or bad families or troubled families, there's just not a lot of time. And God forbid your resentment is so deep that you just want them all to die. God forbid you're in that place and you're still going home for Thanksgiving. But for anybody else, remember, it's a finite amount of time. It's not a lot of time. If you can get some clarity, if you can get some resolve, if you can let some shit go this Thanksgiving, do it. Do it. If you can make it right, and get some acceptance of yourself and your family, this is a great opportunity. If you're with a bunch of people that are avoiding their families, well, just have a nice time then. You made your choice. I hope it's the right choice. I don't. I hope you don't long for that shitty dish that so-and-so makes. And for those of you that this doesn't resonate with, 
Well, good for you. Have a great Thanksgiving. We can get through it, though. You know, the people I'm talking to. We're going to be all right. All right? Because I'm sort of telling this stuff to myself, too. Because I wasn't going to go. There were some issues. And, like, you know, I have to cook. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I don't, do I have to cook for everybody? I just, there were some issues. And I was, I, I was, I haven't been in a couple of years. But, you know, I realized, like, you know, everyone's getting old, man. You know, we don't see each other enough unless you do, unless you're down the street. That's your choice. I know. They help with the kids. All right. So we're going to talk to uh, Rhett Miller in a minute. And uh, I just want you to take a breath, man. Take a breath. I know she's annoying. He's annoying. They're annoying. I know it. I know you're about it. You're on your, you're, you're, you're on your last nerve. But you know what? You get to go home. And theoretically, everybody loves each other. All right? So happy Thanksgiving. And let's talk to Red Milk. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts for now so you're with the old 97s yeah yeah we you're were touring this new record yeah we've been on a which bus. i have right oh, here cool. yeah most oh. messed up what are you 12 albums in this is the 10th 97s album and then i've made five solo records including the one i made in high school how do you look the one you made in high school yeah it, which is embarrassing and it's only is it embarrassing it's only out in uh we made a thousand copies of the cd yeah and i signed and numbered every one and um and i i you know i had a british accent what can i say did you really seventh generation texan kid in dallas but you know all the people i listened to were echo and <laughs> the bunny man and david bowie and so you affected camera. that not intentionally right. i just the music i liked that's how they sure. sing. I mean, that's what you do. So, it's like when you play, I mean, when you play guitar, you're going to, you know, you're going to feel somebody else. Yeah. You're going to pop strings. Like, like I, like, I like, uh, I'm, I like to land somewhere between Angus and, and Peter Green. Nice. If I can, with nice. my limited understanding. <laughs> so what was that first record? It was just you? Just, well, my bass player in the old 97s produced it. He was, uh, he was like a few years old, he was seven years older than me. And we had girlfriends that were friends. We got introduced. And he gave me my first gig opening for his band, Peyote Cowboys. Peyote Cowboys? Such a great psychedelic band. In man. Dallas? Yeah. And this is, uh, what's his name? What's your Murray name? Hammond. You've been with him that long? Yeah, yeah, since I was 15 years old. And he's a couple years older, I guess? He just, he's turning 50 in two days. So I'm, he's like, what? I'm 43, so he's seven years older. Than oh, me. wow. So he kind of took you under his wing in a way. He, 
Yeah, he taught me how to do gigs, taught me how to smoke pot, taught me everything. You need that guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's important. Well, it's okay. So let's go back. You're growing up in what, suburban Dallas? Big time suburban Dallas. I was kind of on the outskirts of the the uh, like rich section because my grandfather had a shit ton of money. Um, for like generations. So you you you're one of those sort of like uh, Texas aristocratic families. Well, but it's kind of funny because my grandfather managed to squander the entire fortune before I was even born. Was it oil or or, or land? textile? Textile. The Millers were textile family, and, and what did they make? Like fabric? Yeah. In fact, I think most of the money came from kind of like profiteering during the wars. They would sell you know uniforms to the government. So they had government contracts. Yeah. Yeah. And made a lot of money, big Dallas money. Had the biggest house across from the Highland Park Country Club. But then in 1954, my grandfather, who was always ahead of his time, decided he would buy a professional football team. So the New York Yankees football team. Which <laughs> there was, was a Yankees football team? Yeah. And uh, they moved to Dallas and became the Dallas Texans. Yeah. Lasted less than one season. And it was... The a disaster. In, that was it. He done, it, That's where he lost all his money all on a his, fucking football team? Who would think you'd lose money in freaking Dallas, Texas? How can he... Well, I mean, he made a big jump. It was a, it was a, it was a vanity project. Yeah, and in a way, I think he shot himself in the foot. He did some stuff that I'm sure he would undo if he could. Did you Maybe. know him? I did. I knew him a little. He died when I was like 17. And what'd your old man do? He's still a lawyer. Yeah? He used to be the kind of lawyer that did a lot you of- You say like, lawyer like a Texan. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a like, twinge. You don't have a lot of it, but I hear it. Oh, and when I get off tour with the guys, it's a little more. Ken, our guitar player, Ken. Yeah. Like, they'll say, what's his name? Ken? Ken. Is Ken. it Kim? Ken? Ken. It's Ken. Ken. <laughs> so, okay, so your dad's a lawyer? Dad's a lawyer. And now he does all this, like, you know, good guy stuff, helping out people who are debt collectors or harassing them and stuff like that. People oh, so, are getting evicted. So he's, he's, he's come full circle? He, yeah, yeah. He made some bread and he's, he's giving back now? No, he never made any bread. Oh, he didn't? He was always a, no, a he, good guy lawyer? Yeah, he used, he used to tell us that every third generation makes the money. That's what he would tell us. And <laughs> so he, is that on you now then? Yeah, exactly. I'm like, it's <laughs> too much pressure. My brother's doing pretty well, though. Older brother? Younger, I'm the oldest. He's a year and a half younger. He's a C O C F O of a like a Fortune oh, 500. He's the financial company. guy, kind of. He's the guy that says, uh, "Why are you spending so much money?" Yeah, he's yeah, like, "We might should pull it back a little bit. We should acquire this competitor." Yeah, That's yeah. His that, oh, really? Yeah. And you don't know what kind of company it is. It's, it's a marketing. Vague. It's a marketing company that mostly deals with like churches and Greek organizations, like fraternity kind of, kind of stuff. Oh yeah, he's a he's a super sweet guy and super smart. You know, I guess our lifestyles on paper seem very different, uh-huh. but we're not all that different. Well, you look pretty good genetically. You seem to be holding up pretty well for a fucking rock guy. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean. You're maintaining your healthy, good looks. Your hair looks. Thanks. Is do you diet? No, no, I did put a couple of highlights in this year. Thanks oh, for yeah. noticing. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're not you're not shying away from the gray. Well, I haven't had to deal with it yet. All I right. don't. I I imagine I might go vanity style and yeah, you're yeah. gonna be that guy. Come on, man! You country guys are supposed to age hard. Well, my my bass player is doing it for me. He's, oh, he's doing it for everybody. <laughs> really? Isn't that weird, man? It is a little to weird. think how long you've been doing this. But I didn't realize you started so fucking young. That's why. You're younger than most of the guys in the band then. Oh, yeah. I'm by far the... Well, no. Phillips, our drummer's only three years older than me. But. All right. So so what happened? So you're growing up in Texas. You got money. That That's a whole other... Th- well, your family does a little bit. That's a whole other thing in Texas. Texas money is... 
There's something that it could be obnoxious. It can tend to be oh, obnoxious. Dude, are you kidding me? <laughs> Grow, growing up in Highland Park, and, and the weird thing was that we had sort of the trappings. There yeah. was the things that fell through when, when all the money disappeared. There was a good house. Yeah. They got turned into a slightly less good house. Right. And, you know, kind <laughs> yeah. of trading down. But staying in the Highland Park school system, which my brother and sister went to. Yeah. And it's not evil, but, I mean, you know, where does Dick Cheney live? You know, where does George Bush, you know, they Junior, all live in Highland does Park. Does Junior live there? Yeah, yeah. That's where his museum is in Highland Park. His museum is a block away from the house that I ended up growing up in. I think in I can't even imagine what's in that museum. George Bush, D- George W, not, not w, senior. W. W's museum. His pre- presidential museum. What's he got in there? Some baseball paraphernalia and- Picture books. I don't know. <laughs> I wonder what's in there. I'd have to go in there. I just out of curiosity. Maybe I will. So yeah. is he somebody you would see around? No, I mean, I don't- there later, I think, anyways. Yeah, and I haven't lived there for 10 years. Uh-huh. Or no, God, I haven't lived there for- a long time it's 97 i moved to la so what were you doing as a kid when did you start playing the guitar i started at 12 and i hurt my fingers too bad so i stopped did you ever get joint pain <laughs> yeah and, and, and on this tour i hyperextended my right knee and so i've got a sprained with stage antics yeah dude and i'm such an idiot like 43 <laughs> years old and yeah. i climb up if it's a good gig and i i feel bad now for people that saw gigs where i didn't do this but if it's a good gig yeah at the end of the night um we start our final song time bomb so was the final song of the encore yeah. and i'll climb up on the drum riser and then climb up on top of my amp on the drum riser and then you know when the first big hit of the song happens i'll jump as high as i can off the amp and sometimes, because some of the risers are pretty high, my amp's always the same level, but right. you know, I'm catching like 12 feet of air and then uh, landing it. And, and I fucked yeah, it up. Huh? In Chicago, I landed it with my knees locked and oh, man. woke up in the middle of the night that night and just felt like, what's wrong with me? Uh, I just yeah. got, I just felt pain from you saying yeah. locked. <laughs> yeah. that, and I just got hit with the pain. Yeah. But okay, so you're 12 years old and you play and then you like in junior high when did you cut that first record with uh with uh with murray yeah i i was 16 it came out when i was 17 and what was it a country song no that was when i had the british accent no it i was, know but i thought maybe it'd be well it was it was exactly the same kind of songs i write now it was really just strummy strummy folky you know definitely one foot in the pop world one foot in like the i grew up loving like folk music so like who like the kingston trio like real square where'd you get that stuff. shit my parents my mom your mom had kingston trio albums she was a singer she was a always in choirs her dream was to be a backup singer for I don't know, like Barry Manilow or somebody like that. Really? Your mom's dream was to be a backup singer. Yeah, yeah. She get like in that documentary, Twenty Feet from Stardom. That's I think it's a low pressure gig where you could probably really enjoy yourself. I it's probably not even that low pressure. I mean, you gotta have the goods. Well, Cheryl Crow did it for years before she went out on her own. She was like a Michael Jackson backup singer. Oh, really? Yep. I had no idea. Do you know Cheryl Crow? She's got a great voice. I've gotten to do stuff with her. She's super nice. Yeah, you've gotten to do a lot of stuff with a lot of different people. Because it's weird with musicians. Like Even if I listen to a couple records, I really like the musician. It doesn't... You, you, all of a sudden, if, you're, if I got to talk to you... Then I'm like, all right, let's see what they've been up to. I'm like, oh, I've missed everything. I, they, they've had an entire career. There's 900 records, and I know that one. Well, I used to see you at Largo all the time when we were both at the old Largo. When yeah. We both hang out. I, I know you were part of the – you've always been sort of – there's a couple of you guys that seem to be around the – there's like you, Ted Leo, Amy Mann, yeah. Nico Case. Yeah. There's some people that seem to kind of run in the same circle. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, not like the maybe the most inner circle with the John Bryans or the- Oh, yeah, and John is a Largo the Largo guy. But I don't think I really know John. Like, I kind of, like, because I lived in New York and I'd come into Largo occasionally. Yeah. I never locked into the, you know, like, Paul F. Tompkins and Galifianakis and those guys yeah. were there all the time and they knew John. Like, I just know John is this, like, oh, he's that genius guy <laughs> that Mary Lynn used to go out with. I just, yeah. I know him as a mythic personality. He's yeah. a myth to me. He's kind of that way even with people that are friends with him. I mean, he's because he's so he exists in some other s- sphere, you know, and now as far as I know, he's totally on the backward schedule. John Bryan is. What he's, does that mean? Wakes up at nine o'clock at night, eats breakfast, goes into the studio. Well, he's, he's like a savant. Yeah. Like a uh, like a pop music savant. He's on a spectrum. Yeah, of yeah. some kind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's what always my feeling of it was. And then when he when he produced um like he produced one of the Fiona records, right? Yeah, he worked on one and then produced and and then he produced, he produced a, a couple. Right. And then the Kanye West record. That was like uh, when I heard he did that I was like, "What the fuck?" Dude, I went into the studio when they were working on that him and Tom Biller, his engineer at the time, who was super great, and they were like, "Come on down. Kanye's not here. It's super fun." So I went in and they were it was real weird. Kanye's not here. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was real weird. It was all quiet and dark and yeah. they're like being super serious. And and I hung out for a while just watching him work. And finally, I was like, "Dude, what? You asked me to come down. You said it was fun. What's going on?" Yeah. They're like, "Well, actually, Kanye is here now, <laughs> but he's in the vocal booth taking a nap with with a lady." <laughs> <laughs> He had been standing on the street, chick walks by, you want to come in and hear my dope beats or whatever, winds up in the vocal booth five feet away from us, fucking going to town. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that's that's why I got into this business. Yeah. (laughs) There's rock and roll right there or hip hop or what it just, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what, because you always had that, uh, a a real pop sensibility, obviously from when you were in in high school, like it's, there seems to be. I know there's obviously crossover. You know, you you do all the stuff with the old '97s. It's your band, but there's a tone there, you know, that you yeah. honor. That's uh, traditional almost. I've pushed them. There were a couple of records where I I really wanted us to try out. God, I remember in '99 I was listening to a bunch of Bell and Sebastian, which is I don't know if you know them. They're Scottish, or yeah. kind of Fay. The guy called Fay a lot, which I think people when they say that they're usually making you know talking yeah, well, shit. Are they p- right? But they would have strings and they'd have all that kind of right. stuff. Real lush, you yeah. know. But I liked it because it was fucking pretty, but yeah. really clever words and cool melodies. Whatever yeah. I was into it, so I pushed the band uh, on fight songs to try and be just a little less because we were coming from a world. The you know we'd made a record for Bloodshot Records, which is I know uh, those guys. Boy, they they were pushing the term honky scronk at the time, what and is- I was like, I don't want to be involved in anything that could be. Dis- described as honky scronk it's what alt country eventually became the tag that people but, but the weird thing about uh, about what what alt country really was is that I, I don't think any of you necessarily realized w- what you were really up against yeah. in the sense that you know even like steve earl and, and those guys that you know i think early on steve earl in my my mind what he was doing as alt country earlier than than probably what you guys were doing has become mainstream country but yet he was still outside. He was off the grid, and if you're off the fucking grid in that Nashville, you know, poli- yeah. political situation, where do you land? I mean, how do you build an audience? Well, for a while, Nashville country was kind of like what Steve Earle was doing back on Guitar Town. Yeah, and but I don't know if you're if you my finger's definitely not on the pulse of this, but I've Me recently neither. been hip to what's happening in Nashville country now. Is it's becoming like hip hop, like 
real white bread kind of hip hop where these oh my god and the product placement right and the and there's like just a checklist of things you got to talk about your uh your truck your boots your gun you i mean there's like you got a broken heart you you got to name what brand of beer you drink what brand of truck you drive but it's and, but the songs will be like driving down the road i mean they're, yeah, yeah. they're like straight up hip hop songs but, right. and with deaf leopard guitars on them it interesting is crazy if yeah. you go they, they call it bro country but <laughs> if you go now and check it out what's happening it's it's nightmarish it's like post apocalyptically bad <laughs> yeah but like when you guys were starting out i'd never understood what the fuck the problem was with mainstream i guess it wasn't mainstream country but it always seemed to be that there was some real kind of tension between the established order in Nashville and what was being called all country, which was actually more country yeah. than Nashville was producing at that time. Yeah, Did you feel sure. that? Yeah, and it's funny now, you look back at what Nashville was producing at the time, and it seems really kind of sweet and tame in comparison, but it was just real poppy. We've, we've, we've had a hard time in Nashville as a town to play in. When, like nobody ever thought we'd get airplay on country radio. You know, right. that was never even a thing. I don't, but, but that's all politics, isn't it? Because yeah. the, the songs are fucking there. Sure. There's there too much there is the thing. I remember when Electra was trying to push us to rock radio and um, or, you know, even AAA, which is, you know, kind of the sweeter, milder format. Right. But, um, you know, and they would <laughs> I'd have um, big wigs at Electra come to me and say, why does your stuff have to be so sophisticated? <laughs> <laughs> But what does that mean? Minor chords? Exactly. <laughs> a bridge? I don't know. It's like you guys go off the chart with that sweet sound and sad chord. Yeah. You know, yeah. we can't just keep it in the one four five region. Yeah. Where we understand the turnaround. No, I think they were talking about the lyrics too. Uh, I think I was a little too tricky for them. But oh, too clever. What am I going to do, man? Well, no, you got to be a poet. You can't. You can't just all be you know flat out. I mean, there's a lot of great turns of phrases in country music and old country. But I mean, yeah. you know, if you get a little elaborate. Or you get a little sophisticated. It's like, there people are, they're just driving their trucks. They don't want to think. Yeah. No, the country world's never one I even thought for a second I could crack. I did wish But that, yet you played country music, really. I right? know. I know. That's true. But <laughs> and then, you're from Dallas. But like <clears throat> the alt country thing is something I've thought about a lot because it's been my world for a long time. If the Beatles, their very first kind of records that skiffle stuff, if that came out in our world today, they'd be alt country. If Tom Petty's first stuff came out, It'd be alt country. Oh hell yeah, mystery man. Yeah, great. And I, I, oh god, there were some great country songs in the first couple Petty records. Really, yeah, um, amazing. And the funny thing is now that that's sort of the everywhere I go, like all the bands I see playing are bands that are basically doing kind of just alt country, some version of roots Americana rock. Right. And it's awesome. Like for when we were doing it in 93 when we started it was the grunge era you know and i remember a big part of why we started was murray and i were doing these rock bands it was so fucking fail you know and you were we, in them yeah yeah i was fronting rats exploding and buzz and these terrible terrible bands. what were you playing i was the lead singer guitar but, but you know. what was the but music it, what was he into? playing electric guitar and murray was in and out of them because he he was frustrated by it, and my problem was I got. What was the music like? Did it you... was it was a lot like what I do now, but instead of swingy, it was real straight. You know, yeah. It, um, you know, there there was some mid tempo swing stuff, but it was a lot of like sludgy mid tempo rockers, you right. know, with kind of clever words, right? Or whatever it was, yeah. What I do, but was uh, were they were because you're pretty good at a pop hook. Were you doing yeah, that? A lot I, of that? I thought I thought there were some great pop hooks. Yeah. You know? I, yeah, yeah. I didn't have enough experience to You like a pop hook. Dude, I love it. <laughs> Two and a half minute pop song with a couple of really juicy hooks. That's yeah. the best thing to me. And that's what that's that's really the model that has fueled uh you know, 
radio hits forever. Yeah. Did you? But do you, but do you feel like you've uh, you've been uh, looked over? That's funny that you asked that. I did a thing with Paul F. Tompkins the other. We did a Wits taping. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's fun. Yeah, such a great show. Um, and right before we walked on stage, I guess he had just come from a radio visit, which he and I. Is that and what you he, call him a visit? A radio <laughs> visit, exactly. A, you know, promo <laughs> obligation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I think a lot about how comics like you do a lot of road work sure and, and uh, paul does too your lives are a lot like my life but if, yeah uh, i'm not always on tour with the 97s really most of the way i make my money is to go out with one guitar you know with two guitars by yeah. myself yeah play a gig so it's a lot like what you right. do and so i'm sure that you get sent you know you got to go to this station sure. and plug the gig and, sure and you do it it's fine it's yeah. what it is but so paul had just done one of those and we're standing side stage in st paul and he looks over to me and he goes Dude, this radio guy just asked me the question that that like every other radio interviewer asks me. Do they ask you this? He goes, um, "A lot of the people that you came up with are really successful now." Yeah. How does that make you feel? <laughs> and I get that all the time. I'm like, "Well, you know what? Like, I don't know okay. if I would. I don't think I framed it that way. No, you didn't. You didn't. Yours was. But no, because you, I get that a lot. You know, do you feel and, overlooked. Well, yeah, overlooked yeah. Is, is is sort of different because it's one of those weird things because no one can deny the power of the music and the yeah. talent. And, and there's plenty of songs that you've done on your own and with the old 97s that are like, where, how come that's not huge? Yeah. And it's, it's, it's overlooked in the sense that sometimes it's just fucking timing. Yeah. Who the fuck knows who makes that decision or why it happens? If, if someone had the equation of how to solve that, you know, we'd all be making a million dollars. I know. Our our tour manager, Mike Dalkey, has this theory. You just that, said it all with that. I know. If you appear on TV, you should get a million dollars, right? If your face is on that TV. That doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah, Who the no. fuck knows? <laughs> it's impossible to know what's going to make a, the most a number of people go like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. What's your what's your tour manager's theory? Oh, Mike Dolkey, that's it. If you if you appear on TV, you should get a million dollars, right? That's that's how it's supposed well, to work. Well, right? that's what sadly people think. They do think yeah. that. And for years, I was on TV a lot, and yeah. I was I wasn't that was the only money I was making. <laughs> you know, you you go on Letterman as a band. What do you guys? You maybe you get enough to buy yourself dinner. But no, All it's a pretty good payday. Those those because for it's, bands because of the music. after like they have to pay you a certain amount. Well, right, but but as a band, they pay everybody a certain amount. Everybody gets the after minimum minimum. It's it's weird, like it. The lead singer gets the most. The drummer gets the least. It's such a, a hilarious hierarchy. Oh, really? Yeah, how it works. And what about the the music? What about music licensing? Like, if they replay, how does that work? It's that thing where every time it airs, ASCAP goes out and beats somebody up and gets money. Do they? From, um, yeah, well, that's they, good. good. Thank yeah. God for ASCAP. ASCAP's great. It's fucking great, yeah. man. I mean, they have one now for a satellite play for comics called Sound Exchange. Are nice. You guys on that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that, and that's where I get it. And it's like, wow, free money. It's, how do I make more money when I'm sleeping? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what Tom Waits had. The, great line that I, that I think about all the time he was speaking at south by southwest and he's kind of in between songs on his piano and he goes you know i got into this business so i could write a song and then say now fly away and go make daddy some money <laughs> so. all right so wait let's go back to 94 93 so you and uh you and murray are kicking it around in and out of rock bands oh dude and we were living so wheels off and so shitty we were eating ramen noodles like there was i dropped i had a full scholarship to sarah lawrence college to be a creative writer where'd you oh you went to a fancy high school right well that's what that's what it was so i, I was going to this skipping back to my grade school years i was in highland park with all the rich kids yeah i got beat up because we didn't have a maid 
and you and got I, beat up by rich kids. Yeah, I got beat up by rich kids. And basically, one I, I had a reading his fun pin on when I was a fourth grader, and a fifth yeah. grader came up to me and said, "The principal told me to punch any kid that was wearing that pin and punch me in the face." And I was like, "You know what? Fuck this! I'm I'm literally getting beat up for being like." not a dummy for being creative for being a guy that wants to write and do things cool so i researched you're an arty kid yeah so i researched other schools i said fuck this i'm gonna go to a private school and i found bard uh college has simon's rock of bards this smart kid school up by where i live now in the hudson valley and then in dallas there's a school called saint mark's and it was all boys private school and it was it was it's a fucking great school it's amazing you know um so i went and i just set it up myself i asked my parents i said i'm i'm gonna do this and if i can get into one of these schools can we figure out how to pay for it and i i went to uh, to st mark's and i remember i was a fourth grader when they interviewed me i summer after my fourth grade year and i was applying for sixth grade and i um they said so what books have you read lately and i said you know what book i just read that i really loved was catcher in the rye and they're like, why are you reading that as a fourth grader? And I'm yeah. like, I don't know, because it's because it was supposed to be good. Yeah. And um, but I talked about his relationship. So you were precocious with his little sister. fourth grader, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got into St. Mark's, and and you know, even that, it's there's still football players everywhere you go. You know, like the kids. Yeah. That, even if they're not playing football, it's well, a, it's a it's a character type. And I learned pretty quick that I shouldn't necessarily be playing football. It was a moment where they line up in those drills where you're all like. You carry the ball, you tackle him. And yeah. so the the big mean kid that I knew hated my guts, like counted the people and lined up across from me. And then when he tackled me, he'd whisper through the ear hole in my helmet, quit the team, faggot. <laughs> oh, no. And after like the fifth time, I was like, you know what? For an idiot, he's giving me pretty good advice. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> but I, I, I should go back and thank him. <laughs> exactly. Where, wherever he works. But I had fun at that school. You know, it was uh, that happened at the fancy school. Yeah, that was the fancy school. But but, so yeah, so just, there was a line drawn. Yeah. So I hung out with the weirdos there, and and then I started doing music. You know, at 15, I was doing gigs at. You know, but what were four you doing? Primarily week. writing. Were you involved? Were you writing poetry? Were you writing? You no, know, it's funny you ask. I was. I was the editor. We started a literary magazine called the rag we yeah. thought that was so cool yeah, right and, on uh, man yeah, the rag and uh yeah i wrote a lot of poetry and then i realized that writing poetry is not cool like it's i did it i mean i think that was uh, like the the when i was in probably ninth or tenth grade you know i had an english teacher and we were assigned poems and i wrote poems everyone wrote poems and you know we were going to read them out loud in class and mine were just like gut-wrenching Angsty. and they never well they never looked at me the same way they were <laughs> They were sort of overly sensitive and talking about how everything's like uh, meaningless fake and yeah. well, yeah, that and just sexual frustration and yeah. that. Kind of, and uh, yeah, I never got looked at the same. Yeah, yeah, it's got that power. Poetry can alienate, as, but, as well as enlighten. But if you, you know, put some chords under it and sing it a melody, and it's, it's the same exact thing. I mean, the no, poems. Absolutely. I love it. So I get to secretly be a poet now and nobody makes fun of me. I mean, but, to but, my face. But so you you did the rag and and did the and rag, did and, all that stuff and uh did and, gigs. But when did you start uh, writing songs? Uh 13. So played guitar at 12, quit, went back to it because I I was like I got to fucking write songs. This is driving me crazy. Yeah. And and I was I was pretty tortured you know my my parents were going through a there's a line in a robin hitchcock song uh and it rained like a slow divorce yeah. it's this such and my parents divorce took 10 years and it was 10 years because well, your you dad's know. a lawyer well no 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 it's just yeah. because they didn't want to break up and they and they they should have and eventually they did but you know they, they were 13 i was i was seven when it started and 17 when it ended oh my god know? 
and I'm not blaming them for my. I was I was just a fucked up kid, you know. I and the world the world made no sense to me. Like, why is it that the assholes get to win? Why is it that you know I get beat up for reading books? You know, like they'll they'll call me opera singer and then and stick my face into a locker, and I'm like. Opera singers are fucking cool. Yeah, you know, it, it just did, none of it seemed fair. So you felt alienated, but you didn't. You you didn't like. You weren't driving around breaking things. You went inward, or did you drive around I went, and break? I things? went inward. At fourteen, I had a suicide attempt that was pretty gnarly. That really should have worked. Uh, you know, you I, did. Uh, yeah, yes, I did, and I've made a point not to talk about it much. So, uh, so at fourteen, yeah, at that point, you're right in the rag. You're you're playing guitar. It, it was the pointlessness of it. Like, well, what right. do you do? You so you you grow up. You try and get a job to buy, get money to buy a bunch of shit, fill your house with the shit, look at it, dust it, die. Like, it just seems so. So, oh, so the emptiness. Yeah, yeah. You, the, you you went Nick Drake existential. Yeah, yeah. yeah you just went like uh, it, it. You just you played it out. I saw where it was going. I saw and the but, end game. <laughs> but you didn't see that, you know, that even though you were making these observations and that uh, you sort of, you you enjoyed things that most other people didn't enjoy, there was no hope there because there was no winning. Well, at 14, there wasn't. But then very, very quickly thereafter that, I discovered sex with girls. Well, how'd you try? Oh, the suicide. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant the sex. <laughs> I know how that goes. You get the hang of it eventually. Yeah, it took a while. Yeah. Um, uh, well, let's see. I, I basically decided I was going to drink anything with a skull and crossbones on it. So I went under the sink in the guest bathroom and I found all these lamp oil fluids, Yeah, which actually was the thing that ended up saving my life because they're oil based. And yeah. even though they're poison, they coated the lining of my stomach. And then when I went up to my mom's medicine cabinet and downed every pill in every bottle. Oh my God. Which, this is like, it you know, like took you, you had to go room to room. Yeah. That was a, it's a moving suicide attempt. Yeah. Like you just go like, well, what else is there that I can ingest? It was crazy. And then a lot a lot of Valium, which slowed my system down so the, the toxins couldn't pump through. The whole, for for trying really hard to take all the, the wrong shit, I took kind of all the right shit to not die. Did you end. go down? Did someone find well, you? Or? I did. I When I realized, I went and sat down in the living room and I was like, okay, now now what? What's How long is this going to take? Yeah. And then all of a sudden I realized, oh, this is really happening. My legs are numb. And something about my legs being numb made Oof. me want to run. So I ran out the back door and to the railroad tracks a block away. And I ran down the railroad tracks to the Knox Henderson little shopping center that was near our house. And when I got across the street from on the border, there's a 7-Eleven parking lot. And I just went face down in the 7-Eleven parking lot. And there was this really beautiful girl named Barry who went to the Arts Magnet <laughs> High School. And Barry... Um, you knew her? No, I didn't know her. I, oh. ended, I ended up being friends with her because right. she saved my life. But she she saw me go down and she's like, this is not right. So she went over and rolled me over and found a number in my wallet that was my girlfriend's no phone number. You had a girlfriend? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did. So and, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah, it was complicated. All right, so Barry, what she do? Barry, she called the girlfriend whose dad was a doctor, and they came and picked me up and took me to the emergency room. Not an ambulance. There was, no, there was I was service. like, well, well, you could have just called an ambulance. <laughs> but I think she thought maybe I was just fucked up, and right. she didn't want me to get in more trouble. Right, right, or... right, right. So, yeah, so I went, and they didn't pump my stomach because it would have killed me, so they induced vomiting. So I, I guess I, vo I was unconscious, but I vomited for hours and then woke up the next morning and uh that weird thing of surprise to be alive like oh shit <laughs> didn't work <laughs> didn't work wow but, so but then you became friends with barry 
Yeah, I became friends. I I I wanted to go out on dates with Barry, but um. Well, I mean, she's older. Of, she was a, she was just like seventeen. She like must have came like some sort of unwanted angel. She was so hot. Too. Really? Uh, what was going on with the girlfriend that you know drove you over the I edge? Don't know. How I, much? How much of it had to do with that? Well, I know over the years that she has been sensitive to because when it happened it was you know all of our friends knew and everybody knew and you know and she and i might have had a fight that day but that was just one piece of them you know my mom and i had a fight that day you know right the universe and i had a fight that day um (sighs) it sucked but but you know what i figured out was and this is actually one of the other reasons i i knew coming in here today that i'd probably wind up saying this was i've been working with the suicide prevention lifeline and now now just recently and and I think it's it's something nobody fucking talks about because it's so dirty and embarrassing. And it's, see, it's so vilified. You know, it's like, oh, the most selfish thing you could do. Well, the people that are doing it aren't are thinking about it or trying it, aren't thinking about it or trying it because they think, fuck you. They, they think, fuck me. I'm fucked. My world is fucked. The world would be better without me. Yeah. And that's a, that's a horrible thing to think. And it's, and it's something that you can outlive. And I, I'm not going to go PSA style on you, but it yeah. is something I outlived it. And within a year I was writing songs and I had my first gig within a year of that and played in front of people. And the next thing you knew, I had all sorts of reasons to live, you know? Right. Well, I think also that if it's not necessarily depression driven, mm-hmm. but it, it's driven by by the hopelessness that comes from, you know, um, you know, problems at home or like trauma of some kind that where you're just, you know, the discomfort is so intense or the hopelessness is so intense, you don't see any point. Uh, it's 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 definitely a different thing. You can grow out of that. Yeah. But people that battle with that listlessness of depression, wow! I, I like I have a hard time even picturing it. You know what w- that decision? Because when you're in it, the brain's tricky. You you honestly you think of a whole list of reasons why it makes sense, it makes yeah. perfect sense, because you can't see it ever being any different in that moment. Ah, uh, yeah, that's it's a, the worst. That's a tough thing. Well, yeah, but that's also like it's one of those things where. You know, as a sober guy, you know, that when you want to drink, you know, people are like, well, it's going to go away. It's going to pass. <laughs> you, you know, you, you you know, just wait it out or go to sleep. Tomorrow's probably going to be better. But if you're locked into something like, fuck that, every day's the same, you have no ability to see forward or behind you to, to make any rational decision. Yeah. But were you, uh, when you came out of that, I mean, you know, being that type of poet, with the uh, the one suicide attempt under your belt, that's that's some cred in a way. Yeah, I used it. I <laughs> I cashed that card in. <laughs> I got dates. I got gigs. I got <laughs> bands. You were emo before emo. You were, you were a troubled boy. Well, I have thought about that actually. I remember when emo started happening. I'm like, they're just doing what I do, but they're having a little less twang. You know, there's a lot of those three four waltzy kind of songs. A lot yeah. of like, oh shit, the world is full of shit. Kind of. Well, I think that what what you're talking about really in relation to the the hierarchy of of what is mainstream high school at that time, it's just that. Those kind of the kind of kids you were, it's going to be a rough road no matter what. Yeah, and you know we just happen to be in a period now where you know people can sort of find their own way, and that turns out to be a, a fairly profound and popular niche of of that type of troubled teenager. But I think it's always been there. But it was just that the paradigm was so set. You know, you're either a jock or you're a pussy. Oh, especially in Dallas, Texas. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure Albuquerque, New Mexico. Was well, we had a lot of uh, like. There's a lot of Latino influence. Oh, we had yeah. a base. Yeah. You know, the mix there. You know, there was a pretty, a pretty big black community, and I went to a public school. So yeah, it was there, but it was definitely more uh, diverse. Yeah, 
because I think that Texas can get pretty white and pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely class lines and and ethnic lines. Oh, it's a real segregated town. Yeah. It's it's tough. I'm I'm so glad that I live now in I and mean, nothing against Dallas. Dallas has gotten a lot better. I've still got family there and, and tons of friends. But um you know, I live in New York. You know, my, there's there's black kids and Mexican kids on my kids' baseball team. They're all friends. Nobody yeah. even talks about yeah. it. And it's funny, you know, my my eight year old daughter, she'll you'll say like, who's who's your favorite person? And she'll go, well, it's either Rosa Parks or you know, and it's just because Rosa Parks is a fucking badass. That's why, right? I think it's sort of fascinating that that the tide has turned a little bit for for kids who are who are sensitive and and creative because really there there was the jocks and then there was the pussies and then there was the <laughs> the, the math nerds or people that no one knew how to talk to yeah they were just the, playing Dungeons and Dragons and you know they, I was that too you were that yeah, too yeah. really I, I was not a math nerd but I but I did play Dungeons and Dragons it, like I would be one night I was opening for Lords of the New Church at Club Clearview. You know, Steve Bader, yeah. kick-ass punk rock band, or whatever, goth, proto-goth. How old were you this, this time? 16. Really? And then the next night I would be, you know, at my friend John Greenman's house in the garage playing Dungeons & Dragons. Well, that makes sense, I guess. But 16, so you were you were playing in a band that was good no, enough? No, I was solo. I was a teen folky. And in da- and in Dallas, I got kind of embraced. I would open for Red Cross when they came through Lords of the New Church. I opened for Chris Isaac right before Wicked Game at sixteen with my little Ovation guitar, my twelve string Ovation, Roundback. the shittiest guitar in the world. And yeah. you were just singing your songs, just singing my little Seashell Girl keeps fire inside. Yeah. Oh my God! So it was sort of it was kind of like Nick Drakey in a way. Yeah, yeah, and and boy, it's funny. I think now I, th- I think back on it, and some of the lyrics on that record I made in high school. Like I would never write lyrics like this anymore, not because they're bad, but because they're so shocking. Like there was, there's one song, Ryan Miller from Guster has become a friend of mine, but apparently when he was young, he had Mythologies, the record I made in high school, and played some of the songs. The first ever Guster gig, apparently they played the song, song for Truman Capote, and there's a line in there, um, well, the the beer was on the floor, his wife was on her knees, he was pissing on Christ, and she was praying for peace. I would never write pissing on Christ in a song anymore. <laughs> and I don't know how I, in high school, it seemed like a great idea and people love that song. But. Now now I feel bad because like, like I don't want to do a disservice to you because I know that you have very passionate and loyal fans. So they all know mythologies. I mean, mythologies. No, they don't. It's, it's the, if there's a holy grail of my catalog, it's that is not, it's not on Spotify. It's not on iTunes. A thousand copies exist. When they go, when they come up on eBay, they sell for like 350 bucks. I mean, it's, I've tried to keep it out because, for two reasons, it's a little embarrassing because of all the 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 British accent. Yeah, and um, I kind of think it's fun. It's so pre, you know, twenty first century to have something that's not available. It's cool. Like, how many things are not available anymore? So that's okay. So that's eighty nine. So oh, you're sixteen. Uh, I guess it came out when I was. 18. Okay. Yeah. But still. It was fun, man. Those days, because my parents were going through so much that, and it was kind of a different era. Like kids, you know, when you were, when we were kids, you'd yeah. be, you'd ride away from the house on your bike in the morning and come back at night. And nobody fucking asked where you went, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. They were, they had their own things going on. Yeah. So as a teenager, my life was a lot like that. Like I, I mom, I got a gig tonight. I'm going to crash at so-and-so's house. And there's, there's this artist commune warehouse where people had just art studios and music studios. Yeah. Yeah. I, one, yeah those are cool. Yeah. And so I used to just sleep on the floor of this, you know, gallery. And so really that generates, see, I, I lived the same life in a way that 
you know, you're this kid that has these interests, but you're not going to find other people that can really guide you through any of that or show you that it is a lifestyle until you sort of lock in with those older cats. Yeah. Who are like, you know, living it. Yeah. And then when you first meet them, you're like, oh, you can do you can be a grown up and fucking do this. Yeah. So you had them. Yeah, I had I had a great you know Murray yeah. for instance our bass player was was really great. How did he respect. find you? Uh, he had a girlfriend Jennifer and I had a girlfriend Jennifer and they were friends with each other and and they said so hey, he was you dating like each other. So he was dating a younger girl. She was a little bit younger than because him because he's seven years and older. I was dating an older girl. At the time. Okay, I was so, fifteen. Okay, so. so I always hung out with older people. I yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah, no, you're you're yeah. at least you want to be understood even if not even if it's a little bit condescending. Yeah. Like even if they're sort of like, "Oh, look at the little arty kid." Exactly. I didn't mind. I'm yeah. like I'm learning from you fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what so what what were you learning outside of music? What was the art scene like there? Was there uh, photographers, performance art? I mean, still There was all sorts of weird shit. Yeah. I I learned that music was the only way that I could see to make a, to make a life out of it because the rest of it like I'm not gifted in any kind of visual art sense right. but I just think that's tough because you make a painting that painting doesn't do shit it just sits there yeah one person buys it one time yeah you know if I do a song I can play it every night I can yeah. put it on a record I can sell it so the it just seemed like an easier commodity to try and you know sure negotiate so you knew that so I knew that, and but I did like all the weirdos and the artists and the stray cats that lived around. I remember they used to follow me around. I would just walk around. It's great, you know, man. It's, it's great to know that there is an alternate reality to to the mainstream idea. Yeah, you know, and that it, it, and and it's much more interesting. I just went back and spoke to the kids at St. Mark's School, my alma mater, and I've done this before over the years. I had my twentieth and uh, whatever reunion that was fucked up, but um. I've done it over the years where I'll go back and try and pick the five or six songs that are the least inappropriate for me to sing for these, you know, the middle school and the upper school. But I went back this time and I decided I'm going to give them a speech. I'm going to sing a couple of songs and then I'm going to give them a speech because since I left, the school's become way more sort of business oriented and it's driving kids specifically into, you know, hedge funds and that kind of stuff. Right. And, um, which is fine. I get it. You know, you got to make money. But um, so I gave a speech about there is a possibility of a life in the arts. You probably have to give up the idea of being really wealthy, but you can make enough of a living to have a family and a house. Right. And and what you're doing, and you have to ask yourself, is giving up the money, um, uh, is the sacrifice of that worth getting to fucking make something beautiful and give it to the world? Because you're making the world a better place. I what you do true. is making the world a better place. Yeah, it's, I think I think that's true. I don't know if I ever really really thought about that because it's hard to know. But because I always assume, like I I've said before, that like I think music is sort of magic, and and that, it, and and it sort of replenishes itself. It doesn't it doesn't lose its magic. It really just doesn't. Yeah. Like once something is laid down, when once a song exists in the world, you can go back to it at at different parts at points in your life. And either get something new out of it or get exactly what you got out of it the first time. That it will connect with something fundamental to your soul or to your heart. And, and it will always be there. I mean, and, and, it, and if it wears out, you don't listen to it for a while. Yeah. And then eventually you're like, I want to hear that song. And you're like, holy fuck, it still works. Like, that's that's an amazing thing to me. It, and then when you think about it, in, in, in it as, as a gift, it definitely is. It definitely is something that makes the world a better place. And you can't deny that about art. I don't know why I'm just thinking about that now. Because if you, like, even when I think about artists that, that don't resonate or, or don't get as big as, as other artists or whatever, there is that moment in your life where you experience that and it does something to your brain 
that's going to shift you in the direction of, 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 of freedom and, and a better place than, than the other way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's art versus an empty existence. Exactly. And that's, and that was, that was where I came out the other side with the suicide thing was I, this is, this is what it's all about. Filling up the world with beauty. Yeah. You know, and, um, Rain Wilson's become a friend over the years and uh-huh. he's a Baha'i yeah. guy. Yeah. And, um, and which actually kind of is cool. Like I'm not a religious cool. guy. But, yeah. They kind of mix it up. Yeah. But, <laughs> but one thing that he said that I really, really liked was, um, the creation of art, create the act of creation is prayer. Like that is the, the holiest thing you can do because you know, you're acknowledging something bigger. Like, cause the most cynical thing you can do is just sit on a couch and do nothing and just be a vessel filled up with, you know, whatever. Or just work. And, or just work. Yeah, exactly. Work for, for the empty payoff of, uh, I, I don't think security and, and a sense of well-being is necessarily empty. And certainly there's a lot of people that struggle to even have that. Yeah. But, but to sort of, you know, not have any n- definition that nourishes your spirit, you know, in this process of working... Uh, is a is a disaster, and I just I don't like the sort of like well I have an empty job so I can have enough money to retire with, and on weekends I go on the boat. I'm not begrudging that, and I and I and there's part of me that envies people yeah. that accept that as like an okay life, you know, and and that you know what what is, but it's not for everybody the the art thing. I know, just it's, isn't. Yeah, people. Some people weren't meant to do it, but and they're okay. Yeah, yeah. but that's what I was saying to the kids. It's yeah. like obviously most of you guys are going to do the kind of stuff your parents do and make a lot of money, and and that'll be great. But there are some kids in here that are maybe meant to do art or music or whatever. And you're like, you know who you are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they're scared <laughs> yeah. shitless because it's fucking scary. You and know? Those, yeah, and their parents are like a lot of times parents who are who don't want kids to do yeah. that. It's only out of fear yeah. of their future. Yeah. It's it, there's very few parents that are like art sucks. Don't be a pussy. They yeah. exist. And I'm sure that they're you know they, yeah. I, your your parents weren't like that though, were they? No. No, but they exist. But that's a different problem. I have t- the people I've talked to who are creative people. If their parents resisted, it was usually because they were afraid for their future. Of course. And yeah. when I dropped out of college, my parents, you know, said whatever little money we have, you don't get it because you did that. You gave up a hundred thousand dollars scholarship to a great college, and and now you've got no fallback plan. No. And I was like, that's the whole point. I don't want a degree that I can fall back on because then I'll do it because it's way easier. And so for ten years, I fucking ate ramen noodles. Did you so, go through that? Did you go through the real squalor, like just the? Just... Well, my parents were relatively supportive, but we, and once I started doing comedy, I was very stubborn about taking money if unless I really was in trouble. Yeah. So yeah, I lived on the Lower East Side, but I, I really tried to earn my own money, but I was not ever completely cut off. Yeah. Um. So it was squalor of a different kind. Uh, it was squalor in the sense that. I didn't know how how I was going to make it, but I never really thought about it. But that's a good thing, right? Because yeah. it made you have to fucking get out there and work. Yeah, but and I work never, I, ne- I, I never thought of doing anything. I, I never practically thought of any doing anything else. After a certain point, you, just, you don't. E- either you're you're compelled and possessed by it. Yeah. But like, there was never really a functional plan B other than go back to school <laughs> for something vague. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like that was always the thing. Like I could go back to school. Like you barely were there the first time. You did okay, but what do you think is going to happen? Yeah. I don't know. So you so you drop out. You, what, what what were you studying? What was this? Uh, it was creative writing. I was there for. Yeah, but I, why I, would they cut you off if that was your? I mean, there was no big. 
pay off to creative writing. Well, a college degree would, you oh, know, right. at least it, it still held a, a certain amount of uh, esteem then. I know, right? Something. Yeah. yeah, not anymore. So you drop out what after your what year? After one semester. One semester. Yeah, I was. But I had a great. Were you depressed again or no? No, no. I had a great semester. Yeah. I, I had um, two girlfriends who were incredibly awesome that I, you know, one of whom I'm still really great friends with. I was fr- all my friends were seniors. Was the funny thing again? I was only hanging out with the older kids. And you seem like kind of the, a girls' guy. <clears throat> you yeah. seem like a guy that girls are going like, come here, oh, let me take care of you. I, I guess I've never suffered in that regard. <laughs> Poor you and your ramen noodles and <laughs> pussy. <laughs> well, I, I find that about you. I noticed that about about the old ninety sevens, even and, and primarily, I think you is that uh, you know you you somehow amass this following of of sort of groovy you know alty chicks, and they've sort of stayed with you. I imagine at this point that you have like forty five year old women that have been watching you since they were twenty three. Fortunately, the the fan base does sort of regenerate, you know, and the weirdest way that it does is those 45-year-old women that you mentioned they bring will their bring kids? their 22-year-old daughter. <laughs> yeah. That That's when it gets a little weird. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's sweet. It's all right. I had some, one, a manager friend of mine said once, the whole 97s records are for the dudes. Your solo records are for the chicks. Is that true? Not intentionally. It's all for the chicks. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I guess. <laughs> kind of? Rock and roll in general? That's the whole point of rock and roll. That's yeah. why there's on the new record, there's a song called Let's Get Drunk and Get It On. And yeah. when I brought it around, a bunch of people were like, are you serious? You can't just say that. I'm like, are you fucking kidding? That's what every single song I've ever written basically said in so many words. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck me. I mean, yeah, that's the whole point of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> but you know you gotta be sweet you know yeah i mean i think a lot of your lyrics speak to a vulnerability that that is not that aggressive maybe that's what they were concerned about uh, yeah definitely You're I, some, I, what are you some drunk monster <laughs> oh but the song is really sweet it's a it's a total love song it just happens to put it all you know up on that yeah. yeah 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 well all right so Let's get back to this country idea. So, you know, you leave college and you are a folk singer to some degree or at least a a, a solo pop song writer. I mean, what was the thing that brought you guys into deciding that that was your mode? Because, I mean, the old 97s, you know, it, it's a country band, really. Yeah. Well, Murray, came, Murray was living in D.C. when I was going to Sarah Lawrence and he would come up on weekends and we would play and I'd go down to the city and play. CBGB's was open at the time and I used to play at the cantina, the cantina cantina place next to it next to it and so i do every like friday night i'd be on the bill at the cantina and go back up to the thing but i was really just jonesing because i'd i was used to doing music i was doing four gigs a week before i went off to college and so to be doing just one little 30 minute set a week was freaking me out yeah and murray would come up and play we'd hang out and play and so he was like dude you gotta drop out you gotta drop out (laughs) yeah so he goes come on drop out We'll we'll go back to dallas we'll start a band together so um Went back to Dallas, started a band called Sleepy Heroes, yeah, which was really fun. But it was, you know, I, I've never been a great marketer. Like right. the word "old," for instance, is apparently anathema to right. Mar- marketing. Right. So, um, so you know, we we started this band. It was a three piece. I played a twelve string Rickenbacker. Murray played bass, which wound up being sort of the only lead instrument. It was. It just it wasn't going to happen. I remember there was a band around that time called Material Issue that came I out. I love them. They were great. Kim right? and the Waitress. I loved him so good. That guy, I think, killed himself. He did kill himself. Um, but they uh, they were a three piece with. I think he played a bunch of twelve string, and so it was possible that that 
format could have worked at that time for right. a, for a minute, but we weren't executing the it. The world wasn't that ready well. for that in general. I mean, I don't think it really worked for them. I mean, it was pretty limited still. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So um so that band broke up the day that the box of records came back from the manufacturer of CDs and um for whatever reason <laughs> our drummer whatever we Here they are. Problems. Yeah, here. What do we do with them? Again, just self, yeah. you know, defeating. So we uh we broke up and then and then I went through a series of bands Oh God, it got, it got complicated. Like Murray and I had a falling out briefly where we had entered a battle of the bands at the Hard Rock Cafe. We won the first round and we were going to go to the finals. In between the first round and the finals, Murray and I had a fight. And, and, and Over he, what? Uh, I was upset because um, he was saying he wasn't because he, I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this. By Mark. who? By Murray. Because he, uh, because his mic technique was bumming me out. Like he wouldn't sing into the microphone enough, and then he couldn't hear himself enough, and then his harmonies would be off key. And I just, I sort of tried to do an intervention to get him to. Oh, he's gonna be so mad. That what do you mean? This how long ago? That was like, literally over. It was twenty like, years yeah, ago. Exactly. Still, he's uh, not gonna get mad. He can't, he's not allowed to get mad. You guys have got to be beyond. I that. love you, Murray. But so, so, but it was stupid. It was just a dumb fight, you know. And so he quit the band, and then I brought in like a a fill-in bass player to do the finals because there was like $5,000 worth of gear if you won, which yeah. we did. And Murray came and sat in the balcony and got drunk and watched this and was all mad. <laughs> and so there, there's a couple of crazy years between Sleepy Heroes and the old 97s where I was trying different bands. And I had this one band called Buzz that was just a piece of shit. And yeah. I had a band called Rhett's Exploding. Like, why is that a good band? Who who thinks that's a good band name? It's I don't know. Terrible. You did, clearly. Yeah, yeah, I think Murray <laughs> thought of that band name though. But so so these bands were um like I said before sludgy mid-tempo rock. Yeah. And and they were kind of trying to be what Nirvana ended up being, which is this distorted guitar with real pop hooky yeah. things happening. And there was one night Murray and I were roommates in the shithole apartment Marquita Courts in Dallas. It was the night Nirvana did SNL. Yeah. And we watched that and I remember we looked at each other and went, "We got to fucking stop." We we we're never going to be done. We're never going to be as good as them. Yeah. And they're doing it. This is already happening. And we're yeah. trying to do something that's not even coming naturally to us. And so we took like six months off and we didn't do shit. And we, we were listening, both listening kind of obsessively to Hank Williams. And um, just to feel better. Just to, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just because it was so pure. Yeah. You know, those songs, there's just, the, they're, they're, they crystallize what I love about music. You yeah. Know? The hooks and the sentiment and the, the kind of honest, raw emotion. And, yeah. And the simplicity of it. So, so we came together one day and we said, you know what, let's do, let's do this. Let's do, and originally we said no drummer. Let's just do something that's coffee shop based where we can play songs like the kind we really like where it doesn't stand a chance of, because the rock bands we were doing, the whole point was to try and get fucking signed because this was a different era. But was, so did the A&R guys seek you out after Mythologies or no? They, they would come around every once in a while, but they'd come and go, how can you do a band with no lead guitar? Yeah, you know, right, about right. Sleepy Heroes. Where's the or, band, yeah. And then, and then when we would... It just never worked. It right. never clicked. And and you know why? Because it was fucking disingenuous. Because right. we were calculating what the world wanted and then trying to give that to them. Yeah. And it was bullshit because people smell that. Yeah. So when we did Old 97s, the whole idea was, let's do a band that has no fucking chance of ever being popular or getting signed. It'll make us happy. And of course, ironically, because it was what we were, you know, sort You'd of- You'd let go of that to shit. Do. Yeah. yeah. 
and people started liking it. Yeah, and they, a lot of people like it. You built a pretty good audience. You know, you you they sustain you, don't they? They yeah. still come around, and they're then still. It's it's the kind of music that doesn't really date itself. Well, that was that was cal- that was calculated. We were like, if we do this, it's just real, and we can do this for fucking ever. And you know, look at Willie Nelson. And sure. Really, honestly, that's only ever been my goal to be the next Willie Nelson or the next Christofferson, maybe. You know. Right, but you don't seem to be living that life. I mean, you seem like you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Willie's all right. Willie still gets out. No, and... no, but I mean, like you know, it's a notoriously hard life. I mean, Chris, they all kind of beat themselves up at one time. Yeah, but I think that maybe was more a product of that time. Like uh, back yeah. then, everybody was doing tons of coke right. and, and everybody drank. And... Although that was a really early on a decision that I made. I did not. I saw the people doing blow, and in my early twenties, I tried it some because I was working at a restaurant here yeah. and there. Between that's where you tried blow at a restaurant. This oh, fucking course. Cra- crazy chefs. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, the guy who hangs around that has it. The, yeah, there's always somebody that yeah. had it, and then. But I just realized, oh, I would look at the guy that had it, and I'd be yeah, like, yeah. Do I want to be that guy when yeah, I'm forty? Yeah. Fuck no, man. Yeah. So that was an early decision in the band. I was like, We're not nobody. Nobody do blow. You can smoke however much weed you want. You so, can drink. Just. And no smack, no blow. Good. So no one got strung out. Nobody, thank God, not in the old nine sevens. And that's why uh, that's why people bring their daughters to see you. Well, twenty years later. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's so funny. It's, you're saying that's so it sustains me. It not only does it sustain me, but like this record we just put out is the biggest record we've ever put out it's crazy you know we had our highest chart position we're selling out venues that we'd never sold out before we 20 years that. in 20 it only took 20 fucking years that's all right yeah you still look good you Thanks. just hurt your knee <laughs> you'll get over the knee but because the, the the record it rocks it feels good and the first song is a nice long song <laughs> it's a it's a meditation on a life in rock and roll yeah yeah and that guitar is that you up front on that thing the acoustic is me oh who's on that electric oh that's ken our, our ken's the that's a filthy sounding guitar i like it yeah he's like the defining sound of our band i mean as much as murray's ooze and my whatever yeah ken's weird surf his caveman guitars yeah 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 i mean it's like uh, and it seems real autobiographical it seems like you know i think what you're what's happening is that you know there's a wisdom to it now yeah I mean, you guys, you know, you still seem to get along. You still put out good music. You can do your solo albums and people love those. But then when you guys all come together, you're pros and, and you can speak from a place of fucking earned wisdom. And it takes, and it took 20 years for me to, cause I always, I don't, I don't maybe, I know just from my interactions with you and what I've heard of your stuff that you um, battle with that like self-worth. Like, do I belong here? Am I good enough for that, yeah. that anxiety? Right. I always suffered from that. Like. I, you know, like I'd meet somebody famous. And I'd be like, "Oh God, they don't want to talk to me. Why would they want to fucking talk?" Yeah, to I'm me? not in their league. And yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. The, I saw the epi- the Ray Romano episode of the yeah, t- yeah. that's so fucking funny. But it's I've always kind of felt like that. Oh, thanks for inviting me. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and it's, oh, stop it, Ray. You sound like an idiot. Yeah, but um, you, but you don't like the weird thing about that disposition uh-huh. is what is going to change that? What kind of input are you going to get? They're not if people really love you. Yeah. They're 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 going to be feeling the same thing. Like I'm just going to be cool. It's Rep, it's Rep Miller, and yeah. you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to ooze. You, you know, but like a lot of people are like, "You're fucking great," and you never believe them when they say that. Especially sure. if Willie, Willie Nelson said, like, yeah. "I love your stuff." You're like, "Thanks for being nice." So, you know, it's 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 an all it's all an internal dialogue. But it took this long, and now I don't really have that. I mean, it's it's still something you don't I'll have always, the fear. I'll always battle with it, but I don't have that. Like, I don't belong here. I suck. I'm not yeah. good enough. And it took me fucking forever to get over that and that's this record yeah that's this record well there you go boom you don't give a fuck anymore yeah finally finally congratulations uh 
So when you worked with John Bryan, now because like I'm I'm still sort of fascinated with the idea, like because like when you look at, um, I guess a good comparison would be the 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 breakup of um, Uncle Tupelo. Yeah, in a sense that you know what happened between Jay and and Jeff. You you know Jeff had a, a sort of loftier pop aspirations, and and Jay was you know a country rock guy. Yeah. And they they couldn't survive it. So as a band, so what seems that you're able to do is you have you know uh, the old ninety sevens, which does your songs, and you, you guys do have you know pop elements off to, obviously, but you're grounded and rooted in in that sound, the yeah. traditional sound, and you can go do your pop records, and there's no big tension there. It, it first it was weird. We had just done Satellite Rides, which was our last record for Electra, and it was. 99 2000 and the whole business was changing it was when you know it kind of imploded electra records was about to fold uh, electra picked up the option for me to do a solo record but not for the next 97's record and right. that fact alone was weird created a lot of tension and then i went off and did a record that had a bu- i mean do you remember back then the the record budgets were that was like a $350,000 record who fucking needs $350,000 to make a record? I mean, John Bryan and I spent every penny of it. <laughs> we we locked out the studio, NRG Studios for like four months. Uh-huh. We brought in Jim Keltner and Josh Freeze and like the greatest musicians in the world. And we would spend whole days trying to find a guitar tone for like one solo. Just, that, did you like that? I had never known anything like that before. I'd only made records with the 97s, which tended to be much quicker, more live kind of affairs. It was really fun. I mean, watching John Bryan work and, you know, getting paid to watch him work, that's, it's awesome. And it was a great experience. It must, I've never been in a studio like some, uh, the, uh, why the, Trapper Chef in the Shades. Yeah. I'm friends with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. They they asked me to play on a song and what's his name was producing it. You know, the guy used to. Brandon Minson. He's great. He's great. But I'd never experienced any of that. You know the 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 type of kind of like finessing yeah. that you can do down to a note oh, if yeah. you want. I was like, holy fuck, this is a real job. Yeah. I've been here all day. You know, I I I thought I knocked this solo out. You know, an hour ago, <laughs> I thought I nailed that rhythm. That's hilarious. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a whole other world. That shit. It yeah. ain't just playing with your friends. No, but now there was a time back when that record got made. We had a guy on staff whose job was to go home every night and comp things. Yeah, which you you know, which is to to compile different performances into the perfect Frankenstein monster performance. Yeah, which is now so par for the course and accepted that I feel like it's kind of sucked a lot of the fun and and humanity out of music because everything is so perfectly comped. Back then, um, you had to have like a full-time guy to do that. Now, people can just comp so quickly. Right. You know, it's it's a lot. The technology has made it so much well, easier, which is good and bad. Well, what'd you take away from that, you know, in terms of your music of working with a guy who is sort of a, a genius like John Bryan? I mean, in that experience, how did that affect the future of what you do? Well, I learned to play diminished chords, for one thing. <laughs> Basic guitar stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I um he, he's a really inspiring guy because it's it's always about just following your instinct. Like for him, his instincts involve seeing, I think, really seeing the architecture of the music as it's unfolding in front of like the next five seconds and five minutes are all unfolded in his mind and he knows yeah. where he's going and what he's doing. But it's it's really about trusting your instincts and not settling for well that was that was good enough I guess right you know and John would never do he would never be like that's good enough right I guess. that's the and same with what's his name the Brendan Benson yeah. yeah same same thing like they're possessed yeah 
And and they both can pull it off. And know? they have a vision, obviously. I mean, yeah. they, they they that's right. It's trusting your instincts, which is not something that you and I do naturally. No, but it's ironic because you and I both do jobs where you have to do that. You have to make immediate decisions. But, right, but you fake it a lot. And a lot of those things are reactive, so you're yeah. not really thinking it. That's true. That's true. I th- and I've I've heard you say stuff where you'll fall, like, I'll go to this routine. If, yeah. if so-and-so is happening. I remember David Cross opened for me a million years ago at the Fez, the Underground yeah. Cafe in New, in New York. York. Yeah, Such yeah. a great room. Yeah, it was well. my old favorite room. And it was it was just a goof. Like I was like, "Hey, do you want to come do a set opening?" Yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, fine, fuck yeah. it." I just got off this college tour, yeah. and so he tried out a bunch of material that was like, not even material. Yeah, like he just walked up there and was like, "Ram." Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and, and it was an audience that didn't really understand who he was. I don't think. Yeah, and he was kind of bombing. Yeah, and I saw it. And oh, his, he knows how to bomb. <laughs> and I saw it in his face where he was like. Fuck you, people! And he went into like his most killer a yeah, routine, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, he slayed, and he walked <laughs> off stage to just people going ape shit. Yeah. But I could see it in his face, like fuck this, I'm gonna do the yeah, yeah, yeah. He does that moment, we're like, all right, look at him, bring it, yeah, yeah. Well, I talked to like those guys, like uh, the guys in uh, in Blues Traveler, which was interesting because they come out of that whole jam band world, yeah, and it was like they knew. Like the the one thing that I got out of that was that like don't don't shoot your load too early. Yeah, <laughs> save the big song to the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even the build of a song. Yeah. Or even like you know like even uh, if you're gonna play some lead, like you know make sure you you know you save the big you know the big stuff for the end. That's funny. I wrote a song. The one co-write on the new record is yeah. with this guy in Nashville, this funny old songwriter named yeah. John McElroy that I got put together randomly with and. And I saw him in Nashville where we played the other night and we'd written the song together and he's really proud, it turns out, that, of the song and he plays it for people. He's like, if Dylan came over to my house, this is the song I'd play him. And Aww. we had fun writing. Yeah. He got fucking wasted at 10 in the morning and yeah. his house full of ferrets and weird animals. And and uh, But he, when I walked into his house, he said, uh, I've been looking you up on YouTube and I think your audience would appreciate it if you walk up to the mic and said, fuck. And so he, he had this idea for a chorus and the chorus was, Who'd I got to blow to get in this fucking show? It's dark in there, I know, and I got nowhere else to go. And so together we came up with this story about, you know, I married Caroline. It's this whole story about this guy who just fucks up his world, fucks up, makes mistake, mistake. And so in the first verse of the version that we recorded, he said, um, I married Caroline back in May of 99. It was fucked up at the time, but I figured we'd keep trying. And so he goes, you know, the one thing I wish we had changed is I wish we had, because in the second verse, it's... um, uh, wake up from this motherfucking dream. So there's a big motherfucking that happens. Yeah. And then it goes into the chorus with Who'd I Gotta Blow. Yeah. So he's like, the one thing I wish we had done is saved the fuck till the set, till when the motherfucking happens. Because it's like, <laughs> yeah. you shoot your wad too early with the fuck in the first verse. Yeah. But I didn't, I, I sort of disagree because I'm thinking like, fuck it, this is the song where it's I get to say song. fuck. I'm yeah. saying fuck every chance yeah, I get. Yeah, right. Well, that's interesting though. That's the songwriter instinct. It's a, that's a, you, it's a, an entertainer's instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want to play a song? I would love to. Uh, I guess I'll play Nashville since we talked about it. Okay. Well, I married Caroline back in May of 99. Was fucked up at the time, but I figured we'd keep trying. Her brother and her dad, they were spitting mad when I packed up what I had and took off running. It was bad. It was mean. I didn't care. And it's gotten me nowhere, so I'm trying to be a better man. I turn left, turns into right, turn sunshine into night, got my ass kicked every fight, no I couldn't get it right, I built castles out of sand, I couldn't understand why everything I planned ran like whiskey off my hands, and my hands were never clean, 
things I wished I'd never seen I'd do anything to wake up from this motherfucking dream Food I got to blow You get in this fucking show It's dark in there, I know And I got nowhere else to go well, I need a place to hide So I'll put away my pride And come inside Cause I'm tired of running Floating out in space And I look up there and I can't find my face And I'm seeing my reflection backstage Writing down the same old words on the same old page Who'd I got to blow to get in this fucking show It's dark in there I know and I got nowhere else to go I need a place to hide So I'll put away my pride and come inside Cause I'm tired of running Yeah, I said, who'd I got to blow to get in this fucking show? It's dark in there, I know, and I got nowhere else to go. I need a place to hide, so I'll put away my pride and come inside, cause I'm tired of running. And come inside, cause I'm tired of running. And come inside, cause I'm tired of running. Yeah. God damn. That guitar sounds so full. Nice. Gibson J200. It's unbelievable. I play this little J45, but that thing's just full. That's great. Well, thanks, man. It was great talking to you. It was so great being... You know, you've always been so nice and kind to me when we've run into each other, and I'm honored. And you know what? I'm really proud of all your kick-ass success. Way oh, thank you. You too, man. I'm glad the fear is gone. Woo! Yeah. See, that was a fun chat, wasn't it? That guy's a good guy. Good song. Go to WTF.com for all your WTF needs. We got the the merch in there. That's a Stratocaster. That's that Strat sound, man. Am I right? Thanksgiving, and uh, I like this sound a little better. <laughs> Boomer lives. <laughs>